Did you know palm oil is used in around 50% of all products found on supermarket shelves? Welcome to Sustainability Matters Today, where you'll learn about the fantastic work people and organizations are doing right now to heal our planet through environmentally friendly products and methodologies. My name is Daniel Hartz, and I speak with amazing champions of sustainability who prove a clean and beautiful future on Earth is possible because green practices oftentimes make financial sense. I aim to uncover the important role money plays in people's decisions to adopt and commit to environmentally friendly practices in order to create a chain reaction of positive change. In each episode, you'll also learn practical steps you can take every day to live a more eco-friendly lifestyle. Let's jump in. In this episode of Sustainability Matters Today, I interview Inge Vanderslaus, Head of European Operations at the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, aka the RSPO, and champion of sustainable palm oil. Established in 2004, the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil is the leading certifying body that demonstrates palm oil is produced with the environment and society in mind. The RSPO has more than 4,000 members worldwide who represent all links along the palm oil supply chain. They've committed to produce, source, and or use sustainable palm oil certified by the RSPO. Please make sure to subscribe to the Sustainability Matters Today podcast to learn more about other champions of sustainability like Inkip. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm here with Inke Vanderslaus, Head of European Operations for the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. Thank you for joining me, Inke. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd love to start with your background uh, before we jump into what the RSPO does. So how did you get started in sustainability? Uh, I've always been interested in nature and conservation. So I did my bachelor's degree in environmental sciences. And then after that, I did a master and my PhD in biology. And I was very interested in how uh, evolution takes place, but also how humans have an impact on the environment. Mm. So that led to eventually this wonderful position in the RSPO. Great. Lots of fun to start seeing how humans are actually a part of the ecosystem and they're related to everything. We're not our own kind of category that's outside of things. Moving on to the goal of the roundtable of sustainable palm oil, it's really to transform the markets to make sustainable palm oil the norm. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear a bit of background and history about the RSPO and really what the organization does on a day-to-day basis. Okay, so we were founded in 2004, and uh, we bring, since then we aim to bring together all stakeholders in the supply chain and work to a common set of criteria to reach 100% of sustainable palm oil. Great. And so uh, the term roundtable uh, kind of reminds me of King Arthur. Uh, so you mentioned that you bring all stakeholders to the table. And is, is that why that word was chosen? Because you have everyone who's involved in the palm oil industry, they're all there represented? Yeah, exactly. So so what it means is that we all have an equal say in this organization. So when we develop new, uh, new strategies to make this sector uh, sustainable, we talk with everyone involved. And I think that this makes the roundtable unique 
and uh, also very uh, effective, slow at times, because you have to have consensus of all the stakeholder groups. But at the same time, if it's um, a a strategy that is supported by everyone, uh, the implementation will be more successful. Mm. And so there are seven sectors, uh, as the RSPO calls it, that are uh, represented. Um, what what are those sectors? And I mean, you mentioned that it's important to have them all there, but why exactly is it important that they're all represented? Mm, indeed. So the seven sectors are one are the growers. Second group is processors and traders. Then we have the consumer goods manufacturers, the retailers, banks and investors, social NGOs and environmental NGOs. Mm-hmm. So it's very important that we all sit together because we can come up with something that we want the growers to implement, for example. The growers don't agree. Uh, it's hard to uh, make uh, sector transformation happen. Right. Are, are any one of those sectors more important than another one? So in the board and the working groups, they have an equal vote. Right, so so right. all of that's why there are seven. They all have uh, uh, the the equal vote, and mm. they together define what they think is sustainable palm oil. And that changes uh, every five years. We review our standard for growers, and uh, there has to be consensus on the changes. Gotcha. So, I mean, I think the reason why this is such an interesting area to to focus on is especially recently palm oil has been receiving a lot of negative press because of its destructive environmental impacts but to provide some context because clearly you know palm oil is being grown and used because well it can't be that bad so you know would you mind providing some context on what exactly is palm oil so palm oil uh, is a product of the oil palm. So the oil palm originates from Africa. Um, it was brought to Asia. So Malaysia and Indonesia currently produce 85% of the global volume. Wow. What we have to keep in mind is that this is the most consumed vegetable oil in the world. So with an increase in population, increase in welfare, we see that the consumption of palm oil even further increases. So there is sometimes criticism on this sector, um, and some companies feel that it's better to move away from it, which is the easy way out. But if you look at it from a global perspective, we have to tackle these sustainability issues that are related to the sector because it is such an important vegetable oil, oil to feed the world. Yeah, and so you're saying it is an important vegetable oil. Um, I read recently a, a statistic that said that basically 50% of items that are sold in a supermarket contain some sort of palm oil derivative. So it seems like it's a very versatile product. What can you do with palm oil exactly other than using it as a vegetable oil? Yeah, good question. Yeah, exactly. So in Europe, we don't see it as a cooking oil very much. But of course, in Asia, that is, it's used as a cooking oil. But mm. here we process it for margarine, peanut butter, but also shampoos, lipsticks, all sorts of products. So it's in many products. And there's a reason for that, right? It's a, a, a versatile, it has certain characteristics, why it's used. So for example, in margarine, 
we use uh, palm oil because it's solid at room temperature, right? right? Other other vegetable oils are liquid. You would need to harden that, and that is uh, technically possible. But uh, palm oil is naturally uh, solid at room temperature, so it creates that margarine or uh, or peanut butter or chocolate paste melts in your mouth, but not in the in the packaging. Mm. Yeah, so it's just. Um much easier to use without having to do any more kind of extra work to it. So what you're saying is that you can't really replace palm oil with other vegetable oils. I mean, I mean, there's soy oil, there's sunflower, corn, they just don't do, they just don't do the job. Or are there any other reasons why we can't really use those as alternatives? Yeah, it's possible to replace palm oil with other vegetable oils. But what we have to keep in mind is that palm oil is a very high yielding crop. Mm. In fact, it's um, giving more four to ten times more oil than other vegetable oil crops. Wow. So if you replace palm with one of the oils that you mentioned, you would need more land. You um, possibly create issues in uh, other regions. Think of soy and Amazon. Um, it's not necessarily a sustainable solution to move away from palm because the other oils are not as efficient in terms of oil yield. Right. So that's uh, so it's not such a simple solution in that sense. As we're saying, oil palms do take up space in kind of crucial parts of the global ecosystem, meaning tropical rainforests. So as much as we'd love to stop cutting those areas down and clearing them, using other vegetable oils like soy would actually probably take up even more space and just be even more destructive. So oil palms are actually the best crop in that sense because they're the most efficient. So really, it sounds like the the solution here is to find a way to balance the increasing demand for palm oil while also protecting the ecosystems where they're growing. And that's exactly where the RSPO um, steps in and starts focusing on sustainable palm oil. So what exactly in that case is sustainable palm oil? So sustainable palm oil is palm oil that is produced with respect to people, planet and prosperity, right? So we have, together with all our stakeholders, described what that means into a grower standard. Uh, So it's important that there is no deforestation for new plantations. There should not be planting on peatlands. And human rights need to be respected. Hmm. So there's three, you mentioned three people, planet, prosperity. Um, And so all of those are created into these, um, basically these rules, um, which is what the RSPO calls the principles and criteria. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I mean, the principles and criteria, I took a look on the website. There's a lot of stuff going on there. So does it organize all of the rules in by stakeholder or how exactly do those pncs work right so the principles and criteria apply to growers and mills mm. right so the this is uh, for the for the production and then there's supply chain certification for the actors in the chain who want to trade sustainable palm oil. And the principles and criteria are evolved around people, planet, prosperity, mm-hmm. and we describe for farmers and, and uh, plantation companies, we describe how to meet uh, the people, planet, prosperity uh, principles. 
in criteria and indicators that can be measured. And the compliance is checked not by us, but by third-party, independent third-party certification bodies. Very interesting. So there's actually two forms of kind of criteria. There's principles and criteria, which are for growers and mills that mills are the ones that process the fruits, uh, yes. the fruits. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you have a whole separate set of criteria, which is specifically for people in the supply chain. Exactly. Yeah. So does that, is that basically everyone else? I mean, there's seven sectors. So are growers and mills one sector or two? One sector. It's growers. So it applies to the mill. The mill often owns plantations, but it also applies right. to growers who don't have their own mill, uh, but are mm-hmm. linked to a mill. So they, they have to comply with the, um, the principles and criteria. And then when you look at the other uh, stakeholders, processes and traders, trade sustainable palm oil. So they need to comply with the chain of custody certification. Um, Same for consumer goods manufacturers. And then retailers are exempted from certification because they don't process uh, the products, right? It's uh, end products that Mm -hmm. are delivered to the store. So the retailers are very important in the demand for palm oil, but they don't uh, certify their own uh, shops, so to say. And so for banks and investors, that's quite similar. So they have policies around how they uh, invest uh, into plantation companies or uh, traders or refiners, right? So they have policies to move the market, but themselves uh, are not um, involved in in uh, trading oil, for example. Right. That's really interesting. Um, it makes sense to me if you don't certify the growers and the mills because they're directly related to what happens in the rainforest or what doesn't happen in the rainforest. But certifying um, the processors and people further down the supply chain, first question that comes to mind is what would happen if you you just focused all of your time and attention on the growers and, and mills and didn't really worry about certifying the banks and you know, others further down the supply chain. Yeah, exactly. So, so what? So the idea is indeed to put most of the effort into the growers, but then the growers have to be rewarded, right, for for mm. the change in their practices and the costs that are involved in changing their practice and become uh, certified by an independent uh, party. So the idea is that others in the supply chain have a responsibility in uh, encouraging that sustainable production. So the processes and traders support the growers by buying their material and trading that to the, to the consumer goods manufacturers, for example. And what they need to comply with is just that they don't sell more than they buy. So it's the supply chain certification is... Uh, focused more on that the companies are making the correct claims and not overselling their volumes. Got it. So, so basically, it's a it's a making sure that people further down the supply chain are actually rewarding all the hard work that the growers are doing. Exactly. Beyond just the standard principles and criteria, the RSPO also has a voluntary add-on, uh, which is called RSPO Next which is basically like the next stage or advanced uh, set of criteria. 
um, for palm oil production that prevents de- deforestation and greenhouse gas emissions. Plus, it also strengthens human rights commitments. So focusing, again, on people, planet, and prosperity. Um, so what additional policies are included in RSPO Next that are not included in the standard PNCs? Okay, so um, after the previous revision of the principles and criteria, so I'm talking about 2013, uh, we reviewed mm-hmm. the principles and criteria. And not all the market players were satisfied with what was defined as uh, the grower standard. So this led to this add-on module, RSPO Next, where you have indeed uh, stricter criteria on deforestation, peat, reduction of greenhouse gases, no fires, and respect for human rights. But these add-on criteria are now incorporated into our new standard. So in November 2018, the RSPO adopted, the members of RSPO adopted a new principle and criteria for the for the growers and the mills and all these criteria are now in the new standard so it's now the default okay so this rspo next is basically doesn't exist anymore it's still there but uh the board is discussing what uh, what uh, we will do with it but it's likely that it will disappear uh, trying to look into the future uh, as soon as the new uh, standard is uh, is uh, completely adopted. Uh, I mean, it's already adopted, the new standard, but uh, fully implemented, I should say. Gotcha. I mean, it's really interesting to hear that it's just becoming more strict and you're really tightening up what, what it means to be sustainable. Yeah. Um, I think that's really, really important. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned earlier that, you know, in a, in a very important part of being sustainable is no deforestation. Uh, and I think that's really what's a lot of people what's on a lot of people's mind when they think about palm oil is, you know, they see videos of orangutans losing their uh, homes and all these trees being cut down. So you have new planting procedures which are designed to protect forests, land, people, and wildlife um, when planting new oil palm plantations. Um, so what are some of the considerations that must be made before any planting begins? So before a company starts a new plantation, they have to have an uh, independent impact assessment of that plantation. So they need to assess whether the land that they want to clear has uh, high biodiversity or perhaps communities that use the land before they can clear. So if there is important biodiversity that we need to conserve, if there is community use of the land, you cannot plant there or if there's peat. So you have to consider before you start a new plantation what is on the land and whether that is something that we need to conserve or whether it's something that we don't worry about mm. uh, and and you can convert. In quote-unquote unsustainable planting, is that has that historically just not been any consideration at all? You People just say, this is a perfect place to plant, let's just do that, and they didn't think about what was there? Yeah, exactly. Not just for palm, for many uh, uh, commodities, land mm. has been cleared because they have legal ownership of the land. But oh, if see. you have legal ownership of the land, somehow that gives you uh, access to it and the rights to clear it. And we're saying no. 
you can have legal ownership, but what if there's customary use by communities? Or what if there is rare and endangered species on that land? You cannot mm-hmm. clear and you have to conserve as an RSPL member. So you, you mentioned that it's that land sometimes has community use or you know, spe- specific people are, are using the land in a specific way. And so um, that's an important part of the assessment is really assessing whether indigenous peoples and local communities uh, will be affected or their livelihood will be affected. Um, so that's what you call the free prior and informed consent. Um, why is that such an important consideration? Yeah, so when you let me take an example because it makes it easier to understand. In Africa, lots of land is owned by the government, but uh, communities have customary rights. So in the past, you would see that companies buy legally and they buy land uh, from the government and think that uh, since they are the owner of the land, they can clear it. But then there were conflicts with the local communities because they may have been farming there forever or they lived off the forest. Uh, And in that case, there's a conflict. So what we say to our members, they have to investigate first who is the the, uh, owner of the land and 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 if you've bought it legally, you have to find out whether communities make use of the land. And if they do, you have to enter this process to talk with them and say, okay, I'm now the owner. Are you using this land? Uh, Would you mind if we turn it into an oil palm plantation? And you have to have consent of the community to to develop the land. Mm. It's only fair because they're using it. I mean, perhaps a company may have legal ownership over the land, but if other people are, if they depend on it, it doesn't seem very fair that someone else just comes in and says, well, I have legal ownership here, so I don't really care what happens to anyone else. Exactly. Does focusing on human rights really tie into environmental benefits as well? Or are they kind of two separate categories? Well, so sustainability sort of um, covers both, right? So in the past, we may have developed uh, uh, voluntary schemes from an environmental angle or from uh, a, a farmer's angle. But these days, sustainability is about social and environmental aspects, and not to forget the prosperity running an economic business. So mm-hmm. I think what what we tend to forget when we talk about palm oil is how much it has brought to the livelihoods of people. So yes, we are all concerned about the planet. We only have one, right. and we need to uh, respect it and uh, treat it properly. But at the same time, we need to allow people to develop and build up proper livelihoods. And the oil palm sector is actually very successful in that. So this sector has lifted millions of people out of poverty. And we should never forget that economic aspect uh, that uh, that has been so important for the producing countries to lift themselves out of poverty and build up. Uh, healthy livelihoods and uh, being able to bring their uh, kids to school. That is the economic uh, aspect of it. So we should never forget that this is that we need a holistic approach to sustainability. We need to consider 
the human rights aspect, so uh, no uh, forced labor, no child labor, uh, these kind of things, but at the same time respect the environment and ensure that the forests maintain. So it's really uh, a very uh, broad approach to sustainability that we're taking with our members. Yeah, I think it makes sense. I mean, it's kind of what we were saying earlier, which is people are part of the environment as well. Uh, and so when you're thinking about sustainability, it is, I think it is important to go beyond just the environmental aspect um, because, yeah, if you're, if you're respecting people, people's rights as well, then you're probably also, well, hopefully also trying to respect the environment. Going back to one of the, one of the things that you mentioned about, about how, where you can and cannot plant, uh, you mentioned that something about, you mentioned something about peat and uh, specifically uh, you you can't really plant on peat or peatland. Um, so what exactly is peatland? Why is that an important thing to protect? Yeah, very good question. So um, peatlands need to be conserved and not drained because if you drain peatlands, you have emissions of greenhouse gases. So in the past, uh, especially in 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 certain countries like Indonesia, lots of plantations were on peat, which means that you have to drain it, otherwise it's too wet for the oil pumps. And if you drain it, you have greenhouse gas emissions. So with our new standard that we adopted last year, we have a complete... Um, uh, ban on peat, so they cannot. Uh, RSPO members cannot plant on peat anymore. Now, what exactly is peat? Peat is uh, like organic organic soil. So mm-hmm. I come from the Netherlands, and we had uh, in the past a lot of peat, and we used to um, extract it because if you dry it, it's a very good uh, way to burn your stuff, for example. So we have done that a lot in the past. And uh, we're telling other parts of the world that they cannot do it anymore because now we understand the environmental impact of uh, draining peatlands. Got it. So is it kind of like a a swampy area? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, And is is there a lot of trees growing there? I mean, is it part of the rainforest or...? Uh, no, it's not part of the rainforest. The rainforest is typically on, uh, on drier soils. But, um, mm. yeah, peatlands is like, uh, indeed, swampy areas uh, where you have uh, unique uh, bird life, you have uh, other species uh, migrating and, and, and staying in those um, fertile soils. Um, and, uh, yeah, we now uh, prohibit planting peatlands and it's important for uh, for certain countries because um, there were many plantations on peatlands so when they are currently already on peatlands they need to maintain the water tables and make sure that it doesn't drain too too much oh i see yeah it's interesting that that really jumped out at me as as a very specific rule Um, i understand the, the deforestation obviously wouldn't want to cut down Rainforests, especially primary ones, where you know there hasn't haven't been people there, but peat seemed like a very specific thing. Yeah, it's interesting to hear about if you drain it, then all of a sudden there's lots of CO two emissions. So a big part of what really of what you're doing is also um, not only are you protecting rainforests, but you're also looking to reduce or maintain or at least prohibit. 
excess CO2 emissions. Exactly, exactly. And that uh, impacts climate change, right? So mm. uh, apart from uh, maintaining the forests, which are important for biodiversity, but also climate change, we also preserve the peatlands now. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so going to the um, certification process in terms of being becoming sustainable and, and for companies to uh, actually get that seal of approval, uh, what exactly does it take for a company to become certified and sustainable? So to become certified for uh, plantation companies, they need to comply with the complete set of principles and criteria. So they they study, it's a thick booklet that they are, of criteria that they <laughs> need to uh, comply with. They study their criteria, they change their practices, and then they invite an independent certification body to come and audit compliance against the standard. So they invite auditors and uh, usually it's a team of auditors, right, for plantation companies because they have to be uh, audited on compliance for environmental criteria and social criteria, uh, meaning that you need different skill sets, right? If you are uh, more of an environmentalist, you would uh, be able to read uh, the satellite images of uh, of uh, the plantation and the surroundings, and you would be uh, knowledgeable about uh, what uh, uh, rare species are, for example. Mm-hmm. But if you want to check compliance on workers' rights, for example, you need to do interviews with the workers, which is a completely different skill set. So what we typically see for plantation companies is that a group of auditors uh, come to the uh, plantation and they verify compliance against the the whole uh, set of principles and criteria. Then they they may have uh, non-conformities that they need to address and when once these are closed, addressed and properly uh, addressed and closed, they is, the certification body issues a, a certificate. And then after one year, they have another audit. So it's an annual audit for compliance. Got it. And you mentioned that these so are the, these are auditors are third party. Yeah. So they're independent of us, and they're accredited by Assurance Services International (ASI). Gotcha. So, um, and and they basically have your list of rules and or the principles and criteria, and they have to take a look at does the um, plantation match and meet all of those principles and criteria. Yes, that's correct. And so, one let's just say that they, uh, the auditor says yes, they do. Uh, this is all good. Then, uh, what happens after that part? So if all is good, the auditor uh, issues a certificate and that's published on our website so everyone can check which growers are certified. And then after one year, they come back and uh, check compliance again. And so those are the uh, certified sustainable companies, but you also have uh, over 4,300 members of um, the RSPO. And so what, what are members and how do they get involved or what are the benefits that they see as being part of the RSPO? Yeah. So indeed, uh, we're uh, growing quite fast with our membership. So we have more than 4,300 members globally from many different countries, many different sectors. These members sign up 
to the code of conduct. And the code of conduct says that you need to use and uh, produce sustainable palm oil. So if you are uh, a grower member, you go towards certification of your plantations. If you're a consumer goods manufacturer, you work towards using 100% sustainable palm oil for your products. If you're a bank, you say, okay, I become a member of the RSPO. I will incorporate it into my policy. For example, when I invest in plantation companies, I require RSPO membership or RSPO certification. So all these members have their own responsibility and their own way to influence this sector transformation to 100% sustainable palm oil. The social and the environmental NGOs are very important as well. They they uh, stimulate uh, uh, the demand. So they ask the, the companies uh, whether they are using sustainable palm oil, but they're also often involved in projects on the ground to work with uh, farmers to uh, make them aware of how they change to more sustainable practices. So every every stakeholder group has a responsibility uh, in this tra- in, uh, sector of transformation, and uh, they all have a different role to play. So to say, gotcha. As as you've been saying, it's um, it's really important that everyone gets involved um, because then they all support each other, and it becomes kind of a virtuous cycle. Um, so what e- exactly is the motivation for companies to get certified? I mean, if I'm a company, um, why would I want to, why would I want this sustainable certification? So for plantation companies, it becomes uh, access to market, right? So if plantation companies want to supply to the European market or the American market, uh, this is what the market will ask for. So it's to show that you have been audited by an independent uh, certification body against a set of criteria that we all agree to. And uh, it's to show that uh, that you produce sustainably and it's really what certain markets uh, demand. Of course, the market demand in other regions is as important and we need to collectively work in other markets to increase that market demand as well. So you can imagine that Europe and the US are already demanding sustainable palm oil, but that is not the biggest market. The biggest market is India, uh, Indonesia, China. So my colleagues in the regional offices are also working with these markets to stimulate market demand there. Which is much harder, of course. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Do you have any insight into how exactly they're how they're doing that? Yeah. So, for example, in uh, India and China, the industry um, formed a coalition or an alliance to work together towards that uh, demand for sustainable palm oil, and that has proven to be very effective. Because also in different countries in Europe, we have national initiatives to move to 100% sustainable palm oil. And these are often mm. sector initiatives. So it's uh, the, the processes and traders of palm oil, but also the, the consumer goods manufacturers who sit together and say, okay, 
we need to tackle this issue because it's big and it's important to us. Um, let's see how we can collectively uh, transform this market. And that's also what is happening in the sort of the newer markets for certified sustainable palm oil, like India and China. And um, it will be at a different speed, but uh, for, for sure that will um, make changes in the market as well. Yeah, great. Well, I think it's um, it's very important if we're going to see global change that everyone who's using palm oil in whatever way gets involved and has the mo- has the correct motivation. One thing I was really surprised to learn about is actually you know we're talking about companies getting certified, but uh, actually forty percent of all palm oil is grown by smallholders, and I, I thought that was very surprising because that's a lot more than I ever imagined. And, and you did mention that palm oil has brought millions out of poverty. I, I guess it does make sense that there that there a lot of palm oil is coming from so, smallholders. Um, it also means that it's very important to get smallholders on board um, if, if we are going to see a world where all palm oil is sustainable. Um, and just to provide some context, who are smallholders uh, and what are some of the common issues that they face as producers? Mm. So indeed, 40% of the land that is under production for oil palm is owned by smallholders. Mm. So this means that we have a huge challenge because in principle, smallholders don't have the same access to knowledge and resources as bigger companies, right? Right. So we have a, a, a unique rule in our spill where we say that mills are responsible for their contracted smallholders or uh, also called schemed smallholders. So the smallholders that are contracted by mills should be brought to sustainable production within a set time frame. This is different for independent smallholders. So independent smallholders are not contracted by mills and they huh, they have a choice where they want to bring their fresh fruit bunches to one or the other mill. So these independent smallholders are more difficult to reach and uh, we need to uh, educate them how they can produce uh, sustainable but also how they achieve RSPO certification. So this year we're we're, uh, sort of uh, implementing our smallholder strategy and that also means that we will have a separate standard for independent smallholders where we allow a step-by-step approach to certification. And uh, this document is not finalized yet. Our members will vote in November whether they agree to this new approach and hopefully they will adopt it because it is a way to uh, support independent smallholders in the steps towards full compliance. Hmm. So, yeah, smallholders uh, as a as a person, basically the definition of a smallholder is um, they have to have less than 50 hectares um, of land. And another big part is that they're, um, the family provides all of the or most of the labor, and then also the palm oil is, or the oil palms rather, are the primary source of income. Yeah, exactly. That's correct. So, so there are challenges to prove that they legally own the land, 
that is that is a challenge that seems like admin here in the Netherlands and perhaps where you are in the UK. Yeah. In uh, in producing countries, it, it is a struggle to to get the land titles in certain certain countries. So they have to prove that they uh, exist uh, on a legal plantation. They uh, you mentioned the family labor that is of course. Uh, uh, Perfectly acceptable, accepted in farms here because we all have a right to education. And then if we help our father uh, at the farm in the evening, that's not an issue. Uh, but we have to ensure that that uh, is the case in, in small holders as well. So the children uh, need to have education. And then there's limited uh, ways that they can work at the plantation has to be always safe and uh, not physically too uh, too heavy. So these are challenges for smallholders because they depend often on family labor. Um, and then other things are, that are challenging to them is have access to the methodologies that we that independent assessors use to to. Uh, assess whether you can clear land, right? So we talked earlier about before you start a plantation, you need to uh, ensure that you don't have rare and endangered species on the land, for example. Uh, It costs a lot of money to have this assessment done by independent parties. So smallholders struggle with that, and there are different models needed to support smallholders in ensuring uh, that they are fully compliant with our principles and criteria. Yeah, that sounds um, challenging. It does not, <laughs> certainly is. Especially considering that there's millions of them. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, what what happens if I'm a um, if I'm a smallholder and I'm able to prove that I own you know a small plot of land? Uh, it's definitely mine. My family is working on it, and I, I'm passing all of those uh, criteria, everything looks good. But then it turns out that my plot of land is right in the middle of, you know, an, a very important part of an ecosystem for an endangered animal. What, what do I do? I mean, you know, I, I the whole point of the smallholders that they're making their, their living off of the oil palms there, how can they get certified um, if where they're living is kind of fundamentally um, you know, it's almost like it's not allowed to be a palm oil. Exactly, exactly. So if uh, this farmer has not cleared the land, it cannot clear the land and it cannot be uh, certified sustainable. If they have cleared in the past, it depends on when they did that. So if they did it before our cut-off date of 2005, uh, they can still become certified. If they have done it after 2005, they, there are compensation mechanisms to compensate for the loss of that piece of land. As far as the compensation model, is that something that the smallholder would, would pay as a form of compensation? Yeah, that is how it should work, um, but it will be extremely challenging for them to bear the cost. So the the conclusion might be that uh, if they did recent clearing, that they cannot be RSPO certified. Gotcha. As far as why a smallholder um, would want to be certified sustainable and go through what sounds like a pretty arduous process uh, for them, uh, what's the benefit for a smallholder to be certified sustainable? Mm. 
So we did a study on um, on smallholders, and it showed that smallholders that become RSPO certified have a higher profitability hmm. and lower costs. So that is that is the direct benefit. And of course, now um, uh, premiums are paid for sustainable uh, produced. Uh, fresh fruit bunches. So it's three aspects. It's the premium, it's the profitability and the lower costs. So it's proven that smallholders have higher yields on the same piece of land. And as we spoke earlier about how palm oil is the most consumed vegetable oil in the world, mm-hmm. we all don't want deforestation and planting on pea. We have to find ways to increase yields on existing land. And for smallholders, we've shown that direct benefit. Yeah, that's fantastic. Basically, you provide that knowledge and access to the tools required to get to that point. Uh, it's it's not only RSPO, it's also yeah, RSPO members who help them. As I said, if they are contracted by mills, the mills will help them to get there. But also our NGOs are very active in bringing smallholders up to speed. Oh, okay. Oh, that's great. So it's... um. One more reason why it's important to have all seven sectors involved. Exactly. Um, okay. Very cool. So it all starts to they all everyone works together to to work towards the common goal of 100% sustainable palm oil. Yeah, fantastic. So you you mentioned uh, in November you're going to be tightening up and hopefully hopefully passing the uh, smallholder strategy. Uh, are, are there any other kind of next steps or big plans that? the RSPO has in the next year or two years or even five years that we can look forward to? Mm. So indeed, the uh, adoption of the new independent smallholder uh, standard is one that we hope to achieve by the end of this year. Another really important development, but quite technical, I warn you, <laughs> okay. is jurisdictional approach to certification. And what it means is that you have a region where all stakeholders come together. So it's the seven groups that we mentioned before, but this time we also bring in the government. So what we do and the government and all the stakeholders do is sit together and agree what the boundaries of the of the region is, where the no-go areas are and agree to that, where mm-hmm. the plantation companies are and agree to that, and bring this whole region to compliance. And it's a long process, but it's the one way we can scale up our impact. Because what we see now is certified plantations in a fragmented habitat, right? If in a fragmented region. Hmm. And what we want to work towards is a wider view and look at what is important in a certain landscape. And let's agree to conserve that not just for palm, but in the future also for other commodities, and then move that whole region to uh, sustainable production, basically. So so our members and the governments in four uh, jurisdictions are working towards that. I, I promise you it's going to be a long process, but it will be with a very high impact. That's interesting. So it's um, it's looking really at how an entire region works almost as an ecosystem and respecting that rather than just considering fixing one little aspect and then perhaps ignoring other parts of it. Exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. So uh, I am, it sounds like you're kind of alluding to the fact that the RSPO will be 
probably focusing on other commodities beyond just palm oil, meaning you might be looking at soy potentially or other commodities that are currently impacting the environment in, in these kind of areas like Malaysia or countries rather like Malaysia and Indonesia. So what we what will happen in the future is that we will invite other uh, voluntary schemes like RSPO to the table. I don't think that RSPO has the ambition to work on other commodities. What we like to see is when we have figured out how it works for palm oil in a certain mm-hmm. region, that that is also adopted for tea or coffee, for example, in the same region. Mm. So what we would like to do is is uh, is invite other voluntary sustainability initiatives to come to the table and ensure that the no-go areas defined for palm are also respected by other commodities. Fantastic. Uh, and that keeps your name roundtable on sustainable palm oil um, intact. And the kind of ethos of bringing everyone together is still being followed, which is great. So what, what can people listening to the podcast do to support the RSPO? And I mean, what, what can people do to be more environmentally friendly with their choices as far as palm oil is concerned? Okay, so for companies, it's really important to develop policies for sustainable sourcing, not just palm, everything. And this becomes your license to produce, right? Mm. Consumers have a trust in the brands uh, and uh, and the consumer goods manufacturers to deliver products that are sourced uh, in a responsible way. So I think that is very important for the companies, not just to develop uh, policies, but also to implement their policies. Many of the companies have a target for 2020, and that seemed far away when they defined it. But of course, now it's around the corner. Yeah. So these companies really have to step up and commit to buying RSPO certified material. And it's out there, so they should really act. For consumers, it's a more complicated issue. Hmm. So if you are a con- conscious consumer and you turn, like me, uh, you turn every package around and read, uh, you may find on some of the products that there is sustainable palm oil in it. Uh, it's not mandatory for our members to use the RSPO trademark on the pack. So mm-hmm. uh, making claims on the pack is not mandatory. Um Consequently, you don't see many products that make that claim. So what you can, what you can do as a consumer is check the brands whether they have sustainable sourcing policies. Interesting. And also, as a consumer, ask on platforms like Twitter, ask your favorite brand whether they use sustainable palm oil. Please don't ask them whether they are using palm oil and whether they cannot do without without palm oil because we have just explained palm oil is a very uh, efficient crop. Palm oil is used for certain re- uh, reasons and especially in our markets, we need to drive that demand for sustainable palm oil. So it's important to call out to the companies to use sustainable palm oil. It's available in the market and they should simply buy it. Mm. I think it's so interesting that uh, it's not mandatory for packaging to have the seal of certification um, or some kind of indication of sustainability just because that seems like such a powerful marketing opportunity, mm. especially considering, as you mentioned, that in the U.S. and Europe, that's, it's, there's such a big demand for it. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the reason is that um, our members decide about the rules, right? So in multi-stakeholder settings, we say, okay, what do we make mandatory and what is voluntary? And our members wanted voluntary trademark use. And it makes sense on certain products, right? We talked earlier about where you find palm oil, think about margarine, peanut butter, shampoo, lipstick. Palm oil is in there, but it may be 1% or 5% or 20%, right? It's not the main ingredient. So what does it mean if you claim that it's that there is sustainable palm oil? What does it say about the other ingredients? So our members wanted the freedom to talk about sustainable palm oil or not. And consumer awareness of the use of palm oil in itself is already very low. And uh, that may also uh, lead to the choice that uh, the use of the trademark is voluntary. I think certain markets, especially where you are in the UK, are changing. The consumers are becoming more aware of the use of, of uh, palm oil. And I think this is an opportunity for our SPL members to start communicating about the things that they have already invested in for years, but never really spoke publicly about. This is their opportunity to step in and say, yes, I'm using palm oil. And guess what? I've been using sustainable palm oil for years already. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's a really big opportunity. Uh, and yeah, Inca, as we start to wrap up here uh, in the last minute or so, so where can people find more information about the roundtable on sustainable palm oil and really learn about the work that you're doing? Mm, so we have a website, uh, rspo.org. Uh, also, we're more active on LinkedIn. Uh, me, myself, I'm, I'm more active on LinkedIn. Not so much on right. Twitter, but uh, our, our colleagues are. So we're on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, if you just Google uh, RSPO, you get a lot of information. Uh, so I think there's lots of information out there, but if people have additional questions, please find me on LinkedIn and, uh, and ask the questions there. It's always welcome. Excellent. Well, hopefully this will start a dialogue and, and people will become a bit more aware of their purchasing habits, both on a corporate and on a personal level. So uh, Inke, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Daniel. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about Inke and RSPO, visit their website at rspo.org or like their Facebook page at rspo.org. You can also follow them on Twitter for fascinating facts at RSPO tweets. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast to be the first to know about new episodes. We're on Spotify, the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, and really anywhere else where you can listen to podcasts. And let us know you listen to this episode on Instagram. Tag us at Sustainability Matters today. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks and talk to you soon.